So this tree and that tree are the ones I didn't plant. All the other ones. <laughs> All the ones are ones I planted. Oh, except that red leaf plant. Exploring Chiropractic, episode 28, After School with Dr. Gordy Ainsley, part two. When, when somebody starts bragging about how they're steeped in philosophy, that just, that just tells me they're, they're anti-intellectual. I just think it's absolute BS. Welcome back to Exploring Chiropractic, the only student chiropractic podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Cashin, and thank you for returning to listen to the continuation of my interview with the father of ultra trail running, Dr. Gordy Ainsley, a chiropractor in Auburn, California, who happened to attend the Western States Chiropractic College in Portland, Oregon, in the previous episode. Gordy told the story about how he started the Western States 100 endurance race, the first time that anybody ran 100 miles nonstop on a trail. In this episode, you'll hear his opinion on chiropractic and science, why he chose to attend Western States, and some interesting medical theories, to say the least. We have another part coming up. Please stay tuned at the end for a preview of the next episode. I hope you enjoy this interview with legend on the trail, my friend Dr. Gordy Ainsley. This is a this area is used as a, a trailhead for runners and walkers who are going up into the canyon. And after probably 15 years of parking my car here to bake in the sun all day, I finally realized, hey, I could plant some trees. So I got in touch with the park district and got permission to plant some trees. I have a tree planting project at my my exit off the freeway too. I got tired of getting to the freeway and seeing this wasteland, so I decided to do something about it. And they put up a little sign for me that says, you know, Gordon Ainsley Chiropractor. And that, that was good. <laughs> there you go. So a sponsor, a little exit off of yeah. off of the highway. Yeah, yeah, sure. Did you did you grow up in this area? I was I was born in Auburn. And I lived in Nevada City until I was fourteen. And then I was just uh, I was bored living in town. And I I I started doing things that were sort of innocuous but illegal, like, you know, stealing half of the, you know, going out at night and stealing half of the flasher lights off a PG&E worksite or something like that, you know. My older brother did that once and gave it to my mom as a birthday present. <laughs> it didn't go over very well. <laughs> no, I'm sure it did. <laughs> anyway, one of my, uh, my co-conspirators got caught shoplifting candy at a Safeway store and they figured that he was the weak link to he was he he was proud of the fact that he belonged to a shoplifting gang which I didn't belong to but anyway so they they pulled him into the police station and put four cops around him all firing questions and after a while all they could talk about was names and so I I got to talk to Officer Friendly and got put on informal probation. My mom decided, I better get this boy out of town. <laughs> so she bought this place in the country. And I, you know, I, I'd always kind of had a yen for hunting and fishing and things like that. And so that actually solved the criminality problem. You know, I just, I just devoted myself to hunting and fishing. And, and um, I'd actually, in those days, it was a funny thing. If you were out in the woods and weren't carrying a gun, people would think you're probably up to no good. <laughs> and so sometimes I was quite a reader, and I would I would go out and maybe read a, a John Steinbeck novel, mm. and and I'd uh, I'd take a gun with me so people wouldn't worry about me. <laughs> Just to read a book, you'd carry. Just to read a book, yeah, yeah. You want to put that on? Oh, thank yeah. you. 
Yeah, it was uh, the world has really changed now. You know, everybody, uh, you get out in the woods now, and and if you're if you're carrying a gun, you're like looked upon with suspicion. Yeah. So things have really changed. Um, I don't know. That was kind of a. Uh, I don't know the ones better or worse. You know, I. They both work. You know, it's just like uh, life was really different. You know, back then. This was 60s, 70s? Mm, 60s, yeah. Yeah, and, and into the early 70s. And then things kind of started to change. People, You know, more people moved in, for one thing. It wasn't just the old guard. We bought a house that had already been there. But mostly people were moving in, buying property, and and building it up. When, when I was... Uh, I... I I think I, I kind of like to diverge from all that. I, I mean, I, I lived in Auburn, and then I went to Grass Valley, or Nevada City, rather, and then my my mom moved us out to between Weimar and Mela Vista, which is about 10 miles out of Auburn. And I was raised by my mom and grandma. My, my mom and dad had a, uh, irreconcilable differences before I was born. Mm. They... They were both very uh, stubborn people. And my mom came back from a, a church nutrition thing in, in San Francisco on a Sunday afternoon with, I guess she was seven months pregnant, and she told the, the church people that picked her up at the bus stop that if she felt like if she had to do the 15 steps up to the hillside home where her and my dad lived that she'd lose me and so they said well come over to our place we have a single level home you can stay there until you're better well she had a vision of my father getting worried asking around and coming to her bedside in a panic and saying oh Bertha I was so worried are you okay and and she would say, oh, Frank, it's so wonderful that you're here. And, and you know, he would take her home. Well, my dad really is a, he doesn't like to be pushed around or manipulated. And so he asked around, and when he found out what was going on, he waited her for her to do what any ma- married woman should do, which is come home to her husband. And he waited for her to come home. She waited for him to come to her side. She even went back to work. She was a nurse. They both worked at a hospital in Weimar. And, you know, each one waited for the other one to give in. And that's how the marriage ended. Hmm. I mean, the stupidest thing I ever heard of. And my dad was the only person my mom ever loved. She kept, you know, she, she made a few other abortive attempts to, you know, to find a man that she liked. And it was just... No, that that was the one. That was her one man in her whole life. And when she was seventy-five, I said, uh, "Did you ever wish that you'd not listened to your church people and just gone home to it?" She said, "Gordy, you'll never know how many times I wish that." Mm-hmm. You know, she just had. You know, sometimes sometimes there's just uh, one person for a particular person, and. She found him in her, due to her stubbornness, she lost him. Mm. You know, he, he eventually ended up with a, a woman in uh, Florida who had been a high school sweetheart. Or, no, I guess she was in high school when, yeah. Anyway, he, he'd known her. He went into the Air Force, made a career out of it, and I think he knew her when, he, when she was... 16 and he was about 25 or something like that and after she'd been married and had a, a kid or two he moved back in with her kicked out her old husband and <laughs> <laughs> he called him a, a worthless creature and I drove him out he said so anyway but the the thing the thing that was interesting about it was I, I got raised by a mother and grandmother who were very religious and uh, they were Seventh-day Adventists and, oh, they were. Yeah, and the Seventh Adventist religion, for those who don't know, is very service oriented. It's like when I was growing up, 
my mom would often say to me, leave the world better than you found it. And that was a big deal. You know, it was a big deal in the religion, a big deal in for my mom. And I think that, you know, it's uh, it's an ethic that I've sort of adopted for my life, that, that I will judge the success of my life on how much how much I improved the world that's around me. People have different ways of judging success. That's that's my way. That's that's what I think of when I when I look when I look back on my life, you know, like yesterday, mm. you know, I look around at all those people whose lives are so much better for basically that run I did, you know, 40 <laughs> better better in the long run but maybe not that day. Well, that day they were they were feeling better emotionally and not nearly as good physically. <laughs> and you know, there's there's one other thing that I you know, of course, you know, as a chiropractor, I've made many people's lives quite a bit better. But in addition to that, I also happened into a relationship with an MD, an alternative medicine doctor, who was here in Auburn for many years. I went to see him because I was so impressed with the fact that he had made, he had invented the best loaf of bread ever made. I would say to this day, it's Ezekiel 4-9 bread. Oh, I've eaten Ezekiel, yeah. Yeah. Well, the raisin and cinnamon version of Ezekiel 4-9 is so good that I eat it straight. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a bit of butter and cinnamon and sugar. Yeah, well, without the butter, maybe. Cinnamon and the sugar. <laughs> Cinnamon's good for you. You know, you have to, Nathan, you have to stick, stick with spreadable fruit if you're going to go for the sweets, you know, not sugar. Okay. You got to learn these things. <laughs> no, I'm fighting, I'm fighting that drug of sugar. No, no, no. Spreadable fruit is the answer. It's totally the answer. <clears throat> anyway, his name was Zane Kime, and and he got the he he looked upon the Bible as a uh, an accurate historical book, and so he got the the formula for making Ezekiel four nine bread from that scripture in the Bible. He hired a baker to figure out how to make it into a loaf because it doesn't it's not ground it's just mashed grains when they're sprouted. And the baker came back after three months and said, you can't do it. It won't make a loaf. You just can't do it. And Zane said, look, it's written there. It's true. You can do it. Do you have a problem with how much I'm paying you? The guy said, no. He said, well, then you're not working hard enough. Go back and work harder. And so he said it took the guy six months to figure out. And he said there was a, a narrow window that... The window, you had two windows you had to get to match up. One was the the number of hours the grain sprouted. And there was a four-hour window there that you had to hit. And you had to hit the temperature within four hours, too. I, I eventually broke Zane's code accidentally in 1999 when I was thinking, well, maybe I, maybe I should learn how to bake bread if the world's going to fall apart in a few <laughs> years <laughs> or in, in less than one year, actually. And so in the winter of 98 to 99, I bought a, you know, I bought a, a, a coarse grinder that would mash it, you know, just want to run it through once and not, not to grind it, just a, a metal thing. And I started baking bread and I, and I heat my house with wood so the kitchen was cooler than the living room, which was, you know, there was a doorway into it, a big doorway. And what I found is that, that when the sprout is the same length as the grain, and when it's sprouted at about 60 degrees, it'll make into a loaf. It gets, it gets this gummy protein, I guess, mm. that... If you chew the sprouts, you can't chew it up. It just, it turns into chewing gum. And that makes it into a good loaf of bread. So, yeah, I broke Zane's code. <laughs> do you still buy the Ezekiel bread? Oh, I still do. It's much easier than, than <laughs> making it yeah, yourself. Much easier than making it myself. Yeah, it's still, I still buy it. In fact, the local holiday market, which is a very responsive small town chain, they will actually stock things that their customers request. So at this point, 
they're they're stocking um, Rolling Rock beer in bottles instead of cans like they used to because I refuse to drink out of a can. And I don't like drinking out of a glass. I drink like drinking out of a bottle. So they're doing that for me, and they're stocking Ezekiel 49 cinnamon raisin bread for me. And my latest request, which I haven't seen yet, is moose drool beer in bottles. That's what you had yesterday after the after yeah, the race. The end of the race. Yeah, that 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 is my my favorite beer for kind of a special occasion beer. But day to day Rolling Rock is that's that's the beer. And oh, you know, I should get I should get into why you know some people say that that you know oh you shouldn't be drinking alcoholic beverages beer and wine but not hard liquor have been uh again and again associated with lower risk of a whole bunch of diseases the one that i pay most attention to is parkinson's disease and the re- excuse me the reason is because an old runner friend of mine came down with parkinson's well one of the blessings I got at, at Western States was I had a nutrition teacher who, in order to pass his class, you had to write a literature review that could be published theoretically in a medical journal. And I, re- I remember when the first one I turned in, he had to give me some extra time on this. <clears throat> the first one I turned in had references like Prevention Magazine and Let's Live, and he said, no, you don't understand. <laughs> That's not science. Those are right next to the to the, the rag mags. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he says, no, you have to go, you have to, your references have to be peer-reviewed medical journals. Well, I had, I knew what peer-reviewed medical journals were, because when I was in the Army, I was assigned, my longest assignment was to a medical library where I had basically two two jobs, which was dusting shelves, which I hated. I mean, I was dusting clean shelves, but, you know. Uh, and the other thing was to copy medical journal articles for doctors. And, you know, back then, the the Xerox machines occupied a whole small room. So I disappear into a small room and, and you know, all you see, all that, those cartoons about Beale Bailey sleeping and goofing off. Well, it's true. You know, I, I mean, I had a choice as soon as I got done photocopying those journals, I had to go back and dust shelves. So I started reading them. <laughs> that was my introduction to the medical literature. So I, I knew what they were. And so I, you know, I resigned and went back and did it over again. And I did a, I did a study on, uh, literature review on on the cancer preventing effects of vitamin A, and I'd gotten onto that because that w- that was in my second nutrition class at Western States. But the first nutrition class, the uh, the teacher had had assigned a really really good textbook. It was it was called uh, Modern Nutrition in Health and Disease. It was by Goodhart and Schills, and uh, you know it was 1977, and it um, you know, among other things, it had nutrition and cancer. And I realized, oh, my God, there's a whole bunch of things that you can do about cancer to prevent it that are nutritional-oriented. So what I did was I, I did it on, on vitamin A, and I found out a real interesting thing. It's, it's like in, in uh, population studies, people who eat more vitamin A in their diet always have lower cancer rates. But when you do supplements they what the studies say is that vitamin A either causes cancer that is it makes it more prevalent or it inhibits it but there's no middle ground and I went aha (laughs) and my logical mind said somebody's lying (laughs) because that's impossible you can't you can't have null effect studies which meant that the effect was quite powerful and I realized that all of the studies that were showing that vitamin A promoted cancer, they were all double blind. And one person's in charge of the code, and the code can be switched. And that was my first introduction to scientific lying. <laughs> it was absolutely clear what was going on. Somebody was lying. The person in charge of the code was lying. They were switching the code so they get the opposite results. Because otherwise there would have been null effect studies 
And, you know, there would have been either negative effect and null effect, or there would have been positive effect and null effect. But it couldn't be no null effect and only positive and negative. It couldn't. It's not possible. So that was a real inter introduction to dishonesty in science. <laughs> so I always watch out for double-blind studies because of that. It's, uh, it's uh, a risk we all have to consider when we, when we read a scientific study. Was it double-blind? And what are the motivations for that person switching the code, whoever had charge of the code? And is that assessor-blinded as well? So not only are the... the Doctors or whoever is administering the treatment blinded to who is getting what. Well, that's what double blind is. Well, there's so there's the patient can be blind, there's the doctor that can be blind, but then the assessor and the people giving the assignment can also be blinded. So that's triple blinded, huh? I guess. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you ever refer to it as triple, but. Yeah. You know, uh, Dr. Jonathan Wright, who's a. He's, he's the doctor that I, he's, of all alternative medicine doctors, he's the one I trust the most because so far he's in the Seattle area. Now, if you ever get to take a chance, he's getting old. I don't know if he gives seminars anymore, but boy, the guy is just, he's so good. And <laughs> as an old, uh, old friend of mine walking by, he's an ENT specialist. Mm. Who's retired? His wife is a firebrand in the in the Sierra Club, and uh, I went to him once with a, a tumor in my nasal septum, and he said, "Well, he said they seldom become cancerous, but when they're due, they're rapidly fatal." And I go, <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> "So I went for a second opinion, and uh, I went to Doctor Lind, who's the medical director for the Hundred Mile Run for." 26 years and became a personal friend of mine when he met me on my first run. He was doing research on the horse riders. He thought they were an example of extreme stress, and here comes this guy running. <laughs> <laughs> so he took me home, introduced me to his wife and family. I helped raise his kids and, you know, kind of held his hand when his wife dumped him. And, you know, we've been through a lot together. But anyway, uh, he recommended another doctor down in Roseville and, and, the guy said, I told him what Dennis Cavallo said. And he, he said, well, did he tell you how often that happens? And I said, no. And he says, about six times a year in the United States. Are you still worried? And I said, no, I'm really not. <laughs> yeah, we always have to talk about the frequency of disease. You know, we can, one of the things I've learned about, about um, you know, I've, I've been, I've been, I do a lot of scientific, um, I guess you could say searching the scientific literature more than any other doctor in town. And so on my website, which anybody can look at, I have protocols for cancer and Parkinson's disease. And I probably should put up one up for Alzheimer's, but uh, I'm kind of busy with Parkinson's and cancer right now. And, you know, the funny thing is, because I'm a chiropractor, I don't get many people who take my advice on, the, on those kinds of things. But the ones who do, it's, it's really dramatic. Like, there was a, an ultra runner from o Oklahoma who I became friends with. They called him Tulsa Ross. And at the age of 75, he quit running because he couldn't finish the Vermont 100-mile run anymore. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you quit because of that? I mean, what about the 50s? What about the, you know, there's 50K, 31 miles. There's 50 miles. There's 100K. No, he, he just quit. And within a year, in about a year, he came down with Parkinson's. And I thought, I kind of scratched my head. And I thought, nah. you know, I've got kind of an analytical mind. And I thought, well, okay. So that happened awful soon after he quit running. I'm wondering if exercise and sun exposure have anything to do with Parkinson's. So, you know, that was, that was, um, oh, and just after the turn of the century. And... There wasn't much in the literature, but what's happened, what I found was I found one study showing that experimental Parkinson's disease in a, in a laboratory environment on brain tissue, they have this chemical that will cause Parkinson's degeneration. And 
it's sort of similar to a lot of chemicals in our environment in the category of pesticides, fungicides, and herbicides. And, and it turns out that those, in fact, cause Parkinson's. So I knew that, I knew that um, one of the herbicides that President Nixon arranged to be sprayed on the Mexican marijuana fields back in the early 70s, and, you know, the Mexicans, being good capitalists, harvested the dead marijuana and shipped it up to the United States, and it caused a whole bunch of Parkinson's disease cases in America. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew about the herbicides. And anyway, the, there was a study showing that this kind of, you know, pesticide herbicide chemical that they used to create experimental Parkinson's disease could do, it could not do it if there was enough vitamin D in the, in the medium that the brain cells were living in. So I thought, aha, I think I've struck gold here. So I didn't really do much until Ross got so bad that I couldn't understand him on the phone. And I said, well, I guess it's time for me to do something. I didn't, at the time, I didn't realize Parkinson's was fatal. But it was apparently that, you know, I, I found out real quick. I thought people just got the shakes and, you know, they just lived with it. Uh-uh. No, no, no. It's, it, it takes you down until there's nothing left. So to get Ross back as a friend I could talk to on the phone, I started going back to the literature. And by that time, there was a substantial amount and I en- ended up thinking of Parkinson's as, as the, the Mark Twain disease after a story Mark Twain told about this guy who went to his doctor and he was told that he, in order to get well, he was going to have to give up whiskey, cigars, and swearing. <laughs> and the guy said, the doctor, I don't do any of those things. And the doctor says, oh, dear me, this is worse than I expected. You've been neglecting your vices. You're like a sinking ship that has nothing to throw overboard. <laughs> and that's, that's the way it is with Parkinson's. The people, the, the people, God, I got a quick kick in this thing. Anyway, either that or talk, talk to the parks about getting a silent base. Uh, the people who get Parkinson's, by and large, realize, you know, nobody can absolutely prevent it, but we can lower our risk. They're people who live too pure. Like they eat those wonderful, healthy, no fat, non-fat yogurts, mm. well, dairy protein and dairy sugar cause Parkinson's disease in susceptible people. And they're people whose lawns look immaculate, gardens are perfect, and don't have ants in their house. Well, pesticides and herbicides cause Parkinson's. Um, they don't smoke. People who smoke get less Parkinson's. It's a nicotine effect because Parkinson's is partially uh, an autoimmune reaction. I figured that one out. I did. I, I, I don't know if it, I haven't read anybody say that, you know, in the in the medical literature. But it's it's real obvious hmm. because nicotine is immune system suppressant. People who get who smoke don't get as much of it as Parkinson's, and vitamin D, which is an immune system modulator. That is, it brings up an underactive immune system and brings down an overactive immune system prevents Parkinson's. Logical conclusion, there's an autoimmune component to Parkinson's. So, anyway, I put all those things together and, and that's on my on my website, which is gordonainsley.com. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have people go there. But I want to jump back because this is a chiropractic podcast and, and you went to Western States. You started in 1980? No, no, 1980, yeah. I got, there, I got there in the middle of an ice storm, the beginning of an ice storm, where people were actually dying because trees were falling on them. Yeah, we had, I think, two people died in town. We still have trees falling. We have not because of ice, but because of wind. And oh. the past two years, we've had trees, full trees fall on cars in our parking lot at Western States. Yeah. Well, Western, I'll tell you, Western States, I, I couldn't be happier for the school, for the school I went to. I, I just couldn't be happier. You know, I, I had to choose between, I had two schools in, uh, in, the Bay Area of Northern California to choose from that weren't accredited, basically had no accreditation. That was Life West and Cleveland at the time? No, Life West and Palmer West is what there are now. But at that time, it was it was Pacific States Chiropractic College and Northern California Chiropractic College. And 
they they got their accreditation later when when life and palmer basically bought them and took them over and and you know and and you know they got the money behind it basically mm-hmm. but at the time western states was a recognized candidate for accreditation so your degree from western states would get you into all of the state boards and then the other schools were in there were two schools in LA that were recognized and one that wasn't one was a straight chiropractic school and then the other the other two that were uh Los Angeles College of Chiropractic, which uh, I guess now is Southern California University of Health Science, um, that was fully recognized, full accreditation. And I think Cleveland was recognized candidate just like Western states. So I had a choice, basically. I, I decided I didn't want to, I thought about the Northern California schools, you know, they were so close, so convenient. I liked them. But I didn't want to. I didn't want to gamble my future on their future, and that turned to be a out to be a, a wise decision because, in my senior year, uh, a number of uh, Life West students had to transfer up to Portland to finish out their last year, or they wouldn't have been able to apply for a lot of the state boards. That's so interesting because we have a lot of people doing the opposite now, transferring from Western states to Life West when they decide they don't like the school and they want something more philosophy focused. Oh God. You know, I'll tell you what really decided me on Western States was, you know, basically I have a university education. Okay. I I went to, I went to, uh, you know, high school at at Colfax. I went to local junior college. Then I went to UC Santa Barbara. What did you study at Santa Barbara? Well, I studied art and psychology and uh, art and social science, basically. You know, I, uh, that was after the military, I was, um, I was, I'd always gotten A's in psychology. Uh, it just, it, you know, it just fascinates me. And so I decided, um, I'd been doing biological sciences all the way through junior college. And I just decided, you know, I was, I was kind of a, uh, a bit of a, a troubled person after the, after the military. And I decided, you know, to study it. And I figured, you know, uh, I might as well make some money on it. So, you know, so I, I just, uh, you know, I set myself out to be a, I was going to use art, art in rehabilitation counseling. So I, I was doing, uh, the kind the kinds of art that are, you know, pretty therapeutic, like mm-hmm. ceramics and sculpture and stuff like that. And of course I had to study the art history and, and the social science I found was really interesting. So I was doing art, I was doing psychology and my, my official major was art and psychology. But I was doing sociology, too, because I recognized that, you know, it isn't all in the mind. A lot of it's in, in what's around us and, and our ability to choose a, uh, an environment that makes us happy. So, you know, I was studying that, too. But anyway, my point being that, you know, like Los Angeles College of Chiropractic sent me this, you know, and Palmer sent me this, these things about, oh, we're so steeped in philosophy and, you know, and blah, 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 blah. And, and Western States sent me a university catalog. And I said, well, that's where I'm going, you know. I, I don't want to hear anybody talk about how, you know, how... I mean, to me, when, when somebody starts bragging about how they're steeped in philosophy, that just, that just tells me they're, they're anti-intellectual. I just think it's absolute BS. Because we know... You know, I mean, we had we had Earl Homewood for our for our. I mean, we we get taught philosophy too. You know, Earl Homewood, and you know, I mean, he'd been he'd been academic dean of three chiropractic colleges and president of two. You know, it's like he was like a a fixture of chiropractic history that was still walking and breathing and smoking of all things. <laughs> God, he didn't die. He didn't die old. You know, he he died at like age sixty five. I mean, you know. It takes a lot more, you know, and I got this message at Western States. Health takes a lot more than getting adjusted and believing in chiropractic philosophy. I mean, we had a, a brilliant chiropractor here in town, Keith Smith's dad, and Keith and I are friends, uh, old Gilbert Smith, great adjuster, always got adjusted. You know, his son became a chiropractor, very good chiropractor. 
But he just, you know, he just would never give up his sugar, you know? And I'd come in to get adjusted by him and he'd say, just start off the conversation with, did you know that a white Irish potato will drive up blood sugar faster than a tablespoon of white sugar? I do know that. I even know why. It's because the white sugars have fructose. But I also know that people who eat white potatoes, unless they put a lot of butter and sour cream on them, you know, like uh, like the, the Irish before the potato famine, nobody had diabetes because it was full nutrition. But people who eat white sugar, they get diabetes, even though it doesn't drive up the blood sugar as fast. You know, it's like you got to you got to look you got to look past the single fact. And, you know, and he, he died when he was like, you know, 66, you know, that's young. And, and we've seen that. We've seen that a lot in our, in our profession. You know, it's like, it takes, it takes, it takes the full, if, you know, you have to know, you have to know how to adjust really well. You have to know nutrition really well. It really helps to become versed on how to read science, the the original scientific articles. That helps because what you're told in the secondary sources is sometimes, especially by the authorities, is absolute BS. I mean, right now, the science, science in a recent issue of Scientific American, there was an editorial on how we should ban tanning beds. Well. As far as anybody has been able to prove, tanning bed, the body can't tell the difference between a tanning bed and sun exposure. There's, there's, you know, you can see the wavelengths are, you know, somewhat different because you get spikes in the tanning beds where it's, you know, spikes in UVA, spikes in UVB, and the sun just gives an even gradient of, of wavelengths. But the body can't tell the difference because you're getting a mixture of UVA and UVB, which is kind of like, you know, April sunshine, basically, is what, what it's like. Or August, uh, August to September sunshine. And going back to 1936, there's research which shows that people who get more sun are less likely to die of cancer. Because although it causes skin cancer, you can see skin cancer growing. And, you know... I mean, if, if we let skin cancer grow until it hurt, we die of skin cancer too, but we don't, you know. We see it growing, we get it cut out, but people die of internal cancer and people who get more sun exposure get a lot less internal cancer. I mean, the study that came out in 1936 from the U.S. Navy showed that, that the people, they got horrendous amounts of sun exposure because there were no sunscreens in those days. It was, and it was uh, seagoing compared to land people in the navy of the same you know same age same mm. gender and they found that they got 60 percent reduction in internal cancer from just horrendous doses of of sunlight so you know the idea that we should i mean we should be telling if we if, if they if the scientific american wasn't lying to us uh or the medical professionals aren't lying to them we should be encouraging people to go to tanning salons because there would be so many less people dying of cancer from internal cancer. And yeah, they'd get more skin cancer, but they, you know, they'd have it removed. My wife had, I've had, uh, I've had four cases of skin cancer, squamous cell. Uh, the first two were removed. They were, you know, diagnosed normally, biopsy and uh, excision. And, you know, by that time I knew what they looked like. I, you know, I could recognize them when they came up. I knew exactly what they were. And so the third and the fourth, I actually cured with a diet. Mm. Yeah. I just, uh, like I said, I, I've got a, uh, an anti-cancer, um, protocol on my website and I just followed it and it cured it, cured these squamous cells. Now, squamous cells is an, an easy cancer to get rid of. You know, it's, it's slow growing and, uh. And that helps. Fast-growing cancers, I would say uh, that that protocol, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put, I wouldn't uh, hold that up as a cure, but it'll definitely give people 
most people who are going to die of cancer, it would give them years more. And nobody ever tells you about that. I mean, they tell you, you know, they're, they're for banning, banning tanning salons, which is, that's just nuts. You know, tanning salon, people who go to tanning salons regularly are going to be less likely to die of cancer. It's just that simple. There's no question about it. Yeah, yeah, they may, they may get more skin cancer. My wife had skin cancer on her eyelid. She had a basal cell. Well, the net result was that eye looks a little younger than the other one. <laughs> she got a skin tuck for free. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's there's just so... Uh, no, how did I get off on this? Uh, you know. <laughs> well, we were, so Western hey, states. Bring me back. Western states uh, had more of a science focus. wasn't exactly as steeped right. in philosophy. You know, what? Well, yeah, they they didn't push the philosophy. I mean, the philosophy was there. I mean, you can't miss philosophy. You know, and and they they got it. I mean, I know I know about how, you know, uh, Homewood was great. I mean, he he explained how D.D. Uh, D.D. Palmer originated a a you know, basically, Western States is a D.D. Palmer college. Yeah. D.D. Palmer called it the fountainhead of chiropractic. He called it his school once he was kind of pushed out of Palmer in, in Iowa. Yeah, yeah. And, and Holman told, told us all about how, how B.J. actually stole Palmer College from D.D. Just stole it from him, you know. Got, his, got, got the family lawyer to go in with him when the poor old man was in jail and and sign it and persuaded him that the government was going to take over Palmer College if they didn't both sign off their their half interest to the son's wife, and then he was barred from entry after that. I mean, it was just, he just stole it. You know, BJ was not a nice person. He just was not a nice person. And the other thing was, he had to leave his mark on chiropractic. He wanted to leave it bigger than his dad, so he did away with all of the adjusting below C two. Yeah. You know, and that's nuts. I mean. You know what I like about my education at Western States is if I can get a good enough textbook on anatomy, physiology, and neurology, I can explain exactly why what I do works. You know, and those people from those other, you know, philosophy, steeped in philosophy colleges, they can't do that. I can explain it to an MD why it works, you know. It's much more of a biomechanical, anatomical focus it's than sci- it's, sci- it's science. It doesn't. It doesn't. It, it doesn't. Um, it's not antagonistic to science, hmm. you know. And and you know, there's a lot of stuff that that goes beyond science. But it's it's really nice to have that science background. And you know, I'm basically a, a real believer in science, realizing that. You know, there's a lot of lying that goes on in science. Like, if you just focus on skin cancer, tanning salons are like awful. Sun exposure is awful. But if you just, you have to ignore this whole mountain of research that shows that people who get more sun exposure die of cancer a heck of a lot less than people who don't get sun exposure. You know, and, and that kind of stuff is, is through science everywhere. And you have to learn how to, how to separate the the malarkey from the good stuff but you know to you know it's like homewood <laughs> homewood used to talk about all kinds of, he told us one time he says you know when you get out in practice you're going to you're going to see some amazing things he said when i was fairly new in practice we got this kid in and and he had a a break a full break of his radius and ulna and we took an x-ray, and then we put him in a cast. And after he'd gone home, we realized we hadn't taken a post-x-ray to make sure where the bones were in the proper place. So we asked him to come back the next day. We took an x-ray the next day, and there was no broken bones. And so we said, he and his partner, they came out into the room where the mother and the grandmother were waiting with the kid and they said we don't understand what's going on we can't find a break in these bones and the grandmother let out a little whoop and it turned out she had taken the kid to a meeting of the church of the blue light and they had had him in a, a like a, a prayer circle or something like that mm-hmm. a healing circle and there he was the next morning he didn't have any sign of a broken bone oh, 
And he said, you're going to see stuff like this out there, you know. And so, you know, he he covered all that, you know. That's that's basically, that's an important thing in philosophy. You need to know that there's something going on out there besides just the scientific stuff, that there are miracles that happen. But but it's so it's so helpful to have the scientific explanation with it, you know, so we can talk to a medical doctor. And... And so that we know what's going on, you know. I mean, people get in. I mean, I I see I see chiropractic scientists who who get into uh, intricate discussions about, you know, to basically say it's all neurology and 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 um, you know, and the the feedback loops and and it's. Um, muscle this and muscle that well you know what's what's obvious is and i guess i should have published on this but what's obvious and i i maybe somebody else has but what's obvious is that you know when when you get a joint stuck that's soft tissue you know it needs it needs circulation it's it's pretty tough soft tissue but it still has to get rid of its waste and it has to get its oxygen and nutrients in and get its waste out and what happens to any joint i mean you know i I, what i what i tell people is i put my finger in the palm of my hand like that and i said now look at that when i pull my finger away that's going to be white okay that means fingertip pressure keeps blood out it stops circulation so basically any joint that's weight bearing is going to have more than fingertip pressure way more and so the only way the joint works right, the only way it can stay alive, the tissue can live, is if it shifts the weight from one part of the joint to another part of the joint. It has to move. That's why when we stay in one position for too long, we just automatically shift. We shift our weight because we don't even notice it because something down there is getting uncomfortable and we move around. However, if you get a joint that's stuck, it can't move. And so what I tell my patients is, What's happening to that joint is the same thing that would happen to your buttock. If you got in your car and you tried to drive to San, from Sacramento to San Diego without shifting your butt, you'd be in terrible pain. If you went to, say, Chicago, you'd have dead tissue. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what happens to your joints when they get stuck. So what a chiropractor does is we go in and we put them back into motion. Now, usually by that time, Frequently, it depends on the person, how long it's been, how, how traumatic the, 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 you know, the jamming of the joint was. Uh, but a lot of times there's, there's basically corresponding ridges and valleys. Basically, tissue died and they don't heal fast, you know. And so we put them into motion and the healing starts, but it, it, it heals slow. He has to build up those those valleys, and eventually it'll get to the point where it's smooth again, and it won't get stuck, at least not too often. <laughs> and so what I tell them is, you know, to keep that healing going, you have to come in twice a week. And, you know, the insurance companies go nuts about this because they, they're used to having some some malarkey laid on them like, you know, you should get adjusted every day for like 10 days. Except, of course, when I'm off on Sunday. <laughs> or maybe Saturday and Sunday. And, and, then, and then you go to three times a week. And then you go to twice a week. And, you know, the people that don't understand the physiology of healing, you know, like a claims representative... That makes perfect sense to them. But that isn't what's happening at all. Basically, we have to, we have to adjust the joint. We have to put it in motion often enough so that the healing of those pits keeps healing until it gets up. And, you know, I've adjusted, the all-time record was a lady who I adjusted twice a week for three years. Now, any qualified medical examiner would have said she was permanently disabled. The MD said that. She had special... She was a, a, an appraiser at a bank 
and they they destroyed her by making her, her work on a laptop. Yeah, they wanted only one computer. She spent 10% of her time in the field, so they put her on a laptop for, I think, five years, and they just destroyed her neck. And then she came in to see me after being on Flexorel and finding herself driving the wrong way down a ramp onto the freeway into facing traffic <laughs> head on. <laughs> she said, I got to do something else. So she came to see me. She got 60% relief the first visit. She went back to her boss and said, oh, my God, I feel so much better. He blew his top. He said, those people aren't even doctors. I want you to go to a real doctor. Don't you ever go to those people again. That's illegal. <laughs> he can't do that. And so um, so she went to the doc in the box who put her on the drugs. And, you know, and, and finally they laid her off because she was their least productive employee. Well, that's illegal, too. So every time they told me about how I was over-treating them, I just remind them how they'd broken the law. <laughs> I got three years of twice a week out of that, out of that uh, it was at Bank of America, self-insured. And, and I got her well. I mean, she's well today. There's no way that woman wouldn't have been permanently disabled, except I just, I kind of had a, a legal gun pointed at their head. <laughs> And I, you know, I've seen, I've seen other people that, you know, basically, you know, I've seen people that I get well in one visit. People come in, you know, one visit. I've seen people I get well in three visits. Everybody's different. You know, you just, you never really know until you start treating a person how well they're responding. And that'll wrap it up for this part of my interview with Gordy Ainsley. Stay tuned for the episode coming up in a few days. To wrap us up, he'll talk about a few more experiences at school. And let me tell you, some of his stories are hilarious. Let me just give you a peek of one of them. I went out to my car, pulled the chainsaw out of the back, and started cutting up a corpse. And, of course, wood chips, so to speak, were flying all over the... <laughs> oh, God. Well, if you enjoyed this interview, please let me know. Send me some messages on Facebook or Twitter. You can find me at Exploring Cairo or just search Exploring Chiropractic. And send me a review on iTunes. Just log in, give us a couple stars, give me four stars, five stars, whatever you think it's worth. But as always, I appreciate your support and your feedback. Hope you continue to enjoy the journey.